Welcome to Always Already B-Sides, following up on our second episode on Sarah Ahmed's Cultural Politics of Emotion. So here you're going to listen to the parts of our conversation that didn't make it into the full episode. So we'll talk a little bit about emotion and cognition, about wonder and critique, about movement, circulation, affect to economies, and then end up talking a little bit about historicity in the book. So enjoy these B-Sides to our discussion of Cultural Politics of Emotion. To her point at the beginning of her book that if something or somebody appears unemotional, so to speak, it's not that there's an absence of emotion, it's simply a different orientation of emotion. And the real question to ask is, how is it that um, we come to think of some people as unemotional and others as possessing exactly. emotion because that itself has to do with the way in which subjects are formed. Yeah, it's interesting. Okay, I, just a pop cultural reference. Uh, as I was reading through this, I realized that there's a lot of parallels to, say, Star Trek, um, either the original series or The Next Generation. You pick any of those. Um, but where should we start? It's quite interesting. Well, let's start with the, you know, the original series, you know, you have the human, um, which, you know, is, um, embodied in Kirk who is intuition and strength, but also emotion, right? Humans are emotional or supposedly. And, um, I, I, but here we have on the opposite end of that, the purely logic, the purely rational, um, of, you know, someone like Spock. Um, and in many instances, you might find that the hero of those episodes tend to be Spock in looking at how to think through the um, very hard and difficult, um, you know, uh, you know uh, obstacles that face the Enterprise. Um, but at the same time, it's a critique of the separate um, if you call it, you know, institutions of thinking, because it's always the combination of the two. It's always a little bit of, you know, of thinking about things in a quote, reasonable way with how emotion plays its part in overcoming these, you know, these obstacles. It's about the friendship and the bond between, you know, these two ways of thinking that ultimately come out as, um, you know, as the salvation for, you know, the ship or its crew. And I think that's something that when I was reading through it, I was thinking, you know, it's not just the abandonment of one, but rather the helpful relationality between the two. See, I think I would even augment that and say it does. (laughs) The the starship, starship always wars thing was illuminating. Um, I would even I would even one up you, though, and say it's more than a relationality. They're actually intertwined and can't even be separated as distinctions. You in got the me sen- there. <laughs> in, the, in the sense that uh, she talks about it in the introduction, like the yeah. sort of, you know, Aristotelian way of thinking about cognition as the um, the fruitful way of you know, walking towards a greater civilization, Uh you know, evolution means cognition. Um, and then Descartes, obviously the separation between bodily sensation and emotion and cognition. And I think what she would potentially argue is that when a sense hits our sight, right. Um, let's say we see an act of violence on the street. Let's say, um, it hits our eyes, right. It's not that we're processing it intellectually. And then also that's being encumbered by emotion. It's that they're, they're one in the same 
in a really material sense. And I think that that is really helpful, despite that in every in our everyday speech, we, we talk about them as separate. Well, my, my intellect is telling me this, but my heart right. is telling me. I mean, it's right. so ingrained. It's so, which I'll do, even though I've read, read this book like four or five times and I find myself catching like that it's so ingrained in our discourses and ways of thinking, whether it's on an academic level or on an interpersonal, interpersonal level of like how I say I feel on a day-to-day basis, recapitulates these same categories and distinctions and binaries that she's working against Absolutely. in this text. And it's not just the, and here's the thing is that uh, you know, this is just coming it's because I'm bringing up pop culture. I have to go there now. Keep going. Uh, you know, it's it's a, it's a part of the cultural narrative that we take for granted every day, not just in in theoretical circles where we're talking about Descartes and the Cartesian ego, uh, cogito. Uh, the X Files itself is also a very <laughs> popular. Show has a distinction between these two individuals. Um, you know, one who quote wants to believe and runs on intuition and emotion and thinks about the loss of loved ones, and it's very much inscribed on the very character, Fox Mulder. Um, and on the <laughs> other hand, you have someone who has a medical degree, is you know trained to be scientific, is very method- uh, you know methodical in the way she, Dana Scully, goes about um, you know looking at each of these cases. And it looks as though there, you know, we have these two competing narratives. Mm-hmm. But ultimately, what's underlying each, even if we're talking about Star Trek or X-Files, what is underlying them is the cooperation of the two. And if we're going to take here, Rachel, um, is in fact they're indistinguishable. Mm -hmm. That the only way at the end of each episode and in fact at the end of each season, the only way that they thrive is by their working together. Mm -hmm. Um, And so it tells me that you know, it's everywhere. You look around, it's not just in textbooks and, and books on the subject. It's everywhere and, in, in, and encompasses so much of our daily lives that it's become background noise. Yeah, and I mean, I, I'm going to read a quote because I think yes. this deals really... Yeah, just quotes. read the whole book. Yeah. <laughs> Love we the bought quotes. us coffee, so we're just kind of, we're extra jolted. I know, we're extra caffeinated. I mean, it's, well, I want to say that I totally agree with you, with both of you. This is a really great podcast where we always agree with one another all the <laughs> we're time. We're doing really I think we agree, disagreed a tiny bit on Masumi or something, so that yeah. was good. We okay. got one yeah. small disagreement. One disagreement. Um, it's the body, the way that Ahmed talks about the body that enables us to link these discourses, right? So, like, I'm on page six when she's talking about impression, um, and she writes... I will use the idea of impression as it allows me to avoid making analytical distinctions mm. between bodily sensation, emotion, and thought as if they could be experienced, experienced in scare quotes, is distinct mm-hmm. realms of human, quote unquote, experience. Right. right? So it's the body and the fact that, you know, if, we're, if the, it's hard to distinguish cognition and sensation and emotion once we think about the way that they all are kind of co-acting with on through the body yeah and actually i think so to me the the most compelling and beautiful passages of the book that that move me so much are when she talks about wonder this idea of wonder and i think that that is both a combination of what we would traditionally think of in a cartesian way of emotion and intellect so to speak or emotion Mm -hmm. and ration mixed into one this idea of wonder which is on making the world, which is looking at something that we assume to be made, whether it's the body before the law or, um, you know, a person walking on the street. 
um, who we associate with one of these categories or one of these raced, gendered, class bodies, right? And she's saying we un, it, like unmaking that comes from a sense of wonder and not taking the world as is. And I think that that is a process that is both emotional and intellectual so much so that you can't separate the two. And that points to the way that emotion is so integral to critique, right? And so I'm going to take an example from my own work. So I I write about Simone de Beauvoir's The Second Sex, which is often read as a kind of not particularly emotional text or hers being, you know, too disembodied. This is actually the critique, one of the critiques that Lloyd makes of her um, in Man of Reason. And so one of the things I want to argue is that actually what Beauvoir does is actually engage this kind of wonder in precisely the way that Rachel's talking about it and then precisely in the way that Ahmed talks about it, that, you know, when Beauvoir asks in the introduction to say that, you know, it's important that I even ask the question, what is a woman? That activates this, you know, these entire set of questions about the histories and the processes and the material and structural and emotional histories that construct discourses of woman as other in Beauvoir's yeah. case, right? So that it's, the, it's you know, emotions that move us to critique in the first place. I love the fact that in every part of what you two just said, there is some kind of stipulation of movement. And that one Wonder requires movement Mm -hmm. and that uh, even discourses, uh, even, you know, traditionally discourses of attempt to immobilize subjects, create fixed moments, right? And I love even this notion um, that Ahmed brings out about stickiness of objects Mm -hmm. and the like implies that it's not fixed, that uh, things in the circulating way uh, might stick to a thing, but ultimately can also move away from a thing. And so... All the way through this text, and which is what was so wonderful for me, wonder, um, <laughs> is that there is this there is this allowance for things to move, and a reminder that um, that there's a fluidity. Um, that things are always already moving. That things are always already moving. That there's a fluidity to our own. Was that the second time you've used? That's the always first. Already? Okay. Right, uh, two more to go. We gotta, yeah, <laughs> we got to keep the tally running. Uh, that these even impressions, right, are movements. Um, either they're being beliefs because she uses them in multiple ways, right? Belief or an effect um, or some, you know, uh, on some level, uh, an imitation, an image. Um, images move. Right. Um, if, if we're borrowing from someone like, you know, Bergson, mm-hmm. um, you know, images move. Our, our minds and our, our, our perceptions are, are built into movement. Um, and that emotions, if I'm reading this correctly, again, this is the first time I've read it. Um, emotions or affect are products of movement. This is the a, way that we orient ourselves towards these objects are then in itself movement. Bee's like very professionally segueing us into something else we wanted to talk about. Right? We wanted to talk about this idea of affective economies that we get in the text. Right? Mm-hmm. So this is most directly at what in pages forty four through forty six, give or take, yeah. which is a really creative reading of Marx, right? In some ways, kind of an appropriation of Marx, if you will, um, that really wants to think about movement uh, and think about again, you know, circulating networks in a way that decenters the subject, in a way that is enables us to access all these sorts of concerns that we've been talking about this whole time. So I'm wondering, I mean, what did, what did you two think of this idea of affective economy and whether it's, 
a useful, um, whether it's productive, whether it's generative, I mean, what your general reactions are to that particular notion and the way she constructs it. Because I actually find it a really hard idea, even though it seems, you know, I read it the first time and, like, I can connect to it right away, but it's also really difficult, I find, to kind of pull apart and, you know, analyze in some depth. What do you find difficult about it? (sighs) Particularly this notion of affective value. Hmm. That she discusses. Hmm. Well, what's a wait, affective so? value in the sense that like we a place certain kinds of the way that she reads uh, Marx in uh, in affect? Is that well? It's this this way that she makes the analogy between Marx's idea of surplus value coming in part oh, from circulation and the way that affective value. I mean, what exactly oh, affective so value on, stands for or what it does. So on page means. 51, at I the think, end of the paragraph, it says affect does not reside in an object or sign, but is an, is an effect of the circulation between objects and signs, et cetera. Signs increase in affective value as an effect of the movement between signs. The more signs circulate, the more affective they become. Now, is so is that kind of hinting at what your yeah. is your point is? I think that you know, but it goes back to the the um, the epigraph, right? Is that um, the more we place at the center, the more that we start talking about, you know, she's mentioning, or at least this hate group is mentioning in that epigraph, uh, the immigrant is stealing, um, the you know the non-white as being you know the other. As is certainly the, you know, there's another part of, uh, the, the chapter where she's bringing up this notion of, uh, the victim shifts in a murder case, um, where someone who was allegedly burglarizing a home is killed by the homeowner. And the way that it's talked about is that the homeowner, um, is, is rather the victim. Right. The homeowner is the victim and not the person who's been murdered or not the person who's died. Um, And I feel like in that sense, when, you know, when I started reading that, I started thinking about the discourses that we that are mobilized here in the U.S. when they just start describing, uh, you know, stand your ground laws. Right. Um, And and other, you know, elements where people uh, these sticking points where all of a sudden the victim is no longer the person who's lost their life. Uh, the victim is the person who is so-called defending themselves. And that's, that, that's what I took as affective value, maybe in, in one way. Is that explaining it? What do you, so you're saying the affective value is that, um, it change, I mean, in that it's historicized and it sort of changes and can be reappropriated? Yeah, well, the more that these things that might not have on its face a, a purely historic, and this is where sometimes I have problems with, how um, historical and ahistorical Ahmed becomes in, in Let's this. Let's go to that next. Okay. I do want to talk about uh, Is sometimes a sign may in fact not be, if we're thinking about it from, in, in one sense, let's play a game here. What if a sign is not in its purest sense historical? It just has some kind of meaning. So like the word victim, right, mm-hmm. um, has meaning and it's it obviously as a, sig- as a signifier is connected to a, a great variety of images and significations. Um, but when the word victim as a sign is placed within the same narrative as mm-hmm. burglary, murder, immigration, white, black, um, and, 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 uh, placing these things in such a way as to suggest that 
um, someone who maybe in one sense, you know, committed the act of murder, right? The homeowner who takes out the alleged burglar, right? That once those signs get in, like, get invested within this narrative, then they, it's like they start picking up more and more and more and more in this sort of physical sense. They start picking up, um, uh, almost mass. They become but, sticky. Right. You, when you think about it, it's a, it's a physical notion, right? The, the faster something that has mass moves, the more mass it attains, right? Or at least the, the greater in, uh, in energy it starts to build up or mass and matter. But I think that actually that speaks really brilliantly to, both the potentials and the setbacks in a Marxist metaphor or Marxist analysis as it applies to emotion, which she she brings in in this chapter. So on the one hand, it's really useful to think about objects as having accumulated value, right? They Mm -hmm. accumulate by having emotion stick to them in a way that shifts over time so that the word victim can be used and appropriated in different ways, for example. At the same time, I think one of the limitations is that – in in a Marxist supply chain or in a supply chain analysis, the object can be transferred from place to place or throughout the chain, throughout a horizontal chain or a vertical chain, depending on how you're thinking about it. And I think Ahmed would say that emotions are not transferred. They're not objects, first of all, and they're not transferred like emotions. So I think there's a certain limitation to the Marxist analysis. It's most useful in its notion of um, value accumulating and that its limitation is in the idea of emotion as an object that can be transferred. Yeah. Well, I mean, I guess I was reading it if I were running with this physical metaphor, which, look, I'm I'm not one for lots of naturalisms, right? But, um, you know, if if something's moving fast enough in space or if something is, is massive enough, it's going to start collecting, you know, other things around it. And so I don't think of it as necessarily the object being emotion, Mm-hmm. But the things that are starting to collect around it maybe are the emotions that which that I, which is what she says right? I think yeah. and so that so that's what I'm suggesting is that it's not the object it's or it's not the emotion as object but rather the things that are collecting around the sign of yeah. a victim right? yeah no I think I just wanted to I, yeah. clarify I know you weren't saying that oh, I was okay. just sort of saying like the limitations, oh, the limitations of the, oh, okay. the Marxist yeah. Okay. yeah yeah I just that's that's one of the things that I think was most fascinating about this chapter. Um, and, and trying to figure out how, in so many ways, um, we see this every day. You know, this isn't just some fancy play on words. Mm-hmm. We see, in, so to speak, we see this every day in the media. We see this every day coming from party politics. Um, we see this every day from partisans in general speaking about um, how to, and especially when uh, they, they invoke uh, a sense of, quote, the people, and how the people are being victimized by other groups. And it made me think more, uh, you know, in this sense, a little bit more critically about the ways in which the invocation of the people Mm -hmm. um, is being used in such, it's even more of an insidious way. Yeah, because it it appears populist, but in fact, it's sort of going back to her idea that citizenship itself is a a form of neighborhood watch or Mm -hmm. is this very imperial It it was just so striking to me how I, you know, even before reading this, I didn't have the words to think quite about it in this way. And then after reading this chapter... It just gave me a new vocabulary, mm-hmm. right? 
Thank you, Ahmed. Thank you, Ahmed. <laughs> if you're listening. It's like an infomercial. I know. Before I read Ahmed, I had no vocabulary to talk about this. For four issue. easy payments of twenty nine ninety nine, you too can possess this vocabulary. Be what's I mean, we had talked a little about this before the show, so I wonder if you can maybe elaborate now kind of the potential problems you had with the way historicity works mm. in the text. And so I don't know if I was and again, uh, I can only use this excuse so many times, uh, only reading this for the first time. But um, I felt like shifting Stop in. Stop being so self-effacing. I know, me. I know, I know. You're a good it's, reader it's of text. It's, it's just, it's me. It's who I am. I'm very self-deprecating. Um, oh, so it's this idea that we can shift in and out of historicity so easily for for words and objects and things. Um, so in, in the one sense, we can start talking about objects in an ahistorical way. We can use mm-hmm. psycho, the psychoanalysis to me, when I read Lacan, I read him and these are some criticisms that have, you know, others have sort of tried to debunk, but it's, it's kind of an ahistorical way of reading sure. words and things. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, signifying chains don't necessarily, at least in the psychoan, some of the psychoanalytic literature do not have history. Um, and they certainly don't invoke bodies, which is what I really appreciate that Ahmed is doing is saying mm-hmm. we reject the psychoanalytic or at least I reject the psychoanalytic notion that it's purely a psychic state. It's rather bodies and et cetera. But to move between victim in one sense as a historical, right, um, and victim all of a sudden as having history or, you know, a thing or object, hmm. you know, being outside of history you know, whatever that object is. I, I get this impression that that's hmm. what, because she's, on the one hand, she's talking about the unconscious. She's talking about the ways in which certain types of things operate in a kind of an analytical way. I mean, not kind of, but in an analytical way, but then launches into then maybe it's the way I was reading it is, is such a way that she had to do this. She had to talk about such a thing in, in analytical terms in this ahistorical way to then move us into history and see how once we begin historicizing things, right, it can operate. But I wondered if that, you know... Yeah, I think maybe two things. I think one of the really productive generative ways she talks about psychoanalysis is that she maybe even does this move that you just described at the end of what you were saying, B. Um, I was doing, if you all know, the, uh, the tiny dialectic. <laughs> the, the tiny dialectic um, hand you movement. look up critical hand gestures online, um, I'm even doing that even though you can't see me. Um, <laughs> my students, I'm sure, love the 7,000 tiny dialectics per class period. Uh, but what B's talking, what you're talking about is that she brings some historicity into parts of psychoanalysis or into a quasi-psychoanalytical account. The way that she uses Freud introduces historicity back into Freud, introduces historicity back into psychoanalysis more broadly, and does so precisely through the body. Yeah. And so in that, in that sense, I actually... I agree that we, when you say that you know maybe she's doing it in a kind of analytical move, and then maybe it's a purely analytical move. And I think that she's aware of, you know, any time that there is no ahistorical invocation of the word victim right. or of any kind of slur or of anything, right, that that word mm-hmm. always, you know, it has emotions stuck to it and is always generating uh, effects, emotional, mm-hmm. material, bodily effects. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm, I'm not sure that that's – I think that 
if she's sliding in and out of historicity, it's more of an analytical move if she's doing it at all. Yeah, I see that now. I think as I was working through it, because when I, on first reading, I wondered if that was just, if that itself is problematic. But if it's an analytical move in itself, then it was a, you know, it was an effective one. E, effective. Thanks for joining us for these Always Already Podcast B-Sides. Podcast is created by John McMahon, B. Alvin, and Rachel Brown. Tune in next week for our episode where we'll be discussing Bruno Latour's Reassembling the Social. You can find information on the chapters we'll be reading and other upcoming episodes on our website, alwaysalreadypodcast.wordpress.com. Email us, alwaysalreadypodcast at gmail.com. Find us on Facebook and subscribe to us on iTunes. Until next time, thanks! Thanks!